Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. I'm your host, Shona Home. Aaron Dunn is a psilocybin facilitator for individuals and groups in Portland, Oregon. In addition, he hosts integration circles for parents in collaboration with a nonprofit organization called Plant Parenthood, which seeks to destigmatize the conversation around psychedelics and parenting. His own experiences with psilocybin have given him a deep reverence for the mushroom, not only as a medicine for healing, but also as an ally in our full flourishing, a way to remember who we are and what it means to be human. Aaron is also a body worker, practicing a form of massage with ancient roots in Russia, Northern Europe, and the Baltics. Sometimes referred to as whisking, it takes place inside of a sauna and uses leafy bundles of oak and birch branches to exfoliate and massage the entire body. Aaron was raised in Oregon and graduated from the Air Force Academy, spending six years parachuting and flying. His process of leaving the military left him with a deep curiosity about personal and collective transformation, which led him into the work that he does today. He lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife and two children. To learn more about Aaron, you can go to AaronDunn.com, and that is A-A-R-O-N-D-O-N-N-E.com. To learn more about Plant Parenthood, you can go to PlantPH.com, and if you want to check out Aaron's psilocybin retreats, you can go to TheElementalRetreat.com. Well, I know Aaron because months ago he emailed me to thank me for my work over the years and to share with me his own apprenticeship with the mushroom teachers. And I was struck by his sincerity and his earnest commitment to engage the mystery fully. He also sent me a poignant article he wrote for Symposia titled The Unexpected Trip which tells of his story from his time in the Air Force to his catalyzing experiences with the mushrooms that opened his awareness in such a way that it changed his approach to life utterly. Here is just an excerpt from what he wrote regarding that experience, and I will, of course, leave a link below. Quote, As interesting and insightful as the trip experience can be, the primary interest of mine in the psychedelic experience is to ask, how does this help me show up in my everyday life? What I can say is that I stare longer into my kids' eyes. Instead of rushing them to sleep, I enter into their imaginative worlds. Instead of fighting an epic inner battle to wake up early, which I've had to do my entire life, I look forward to greeting the day with intention at 5.30 a.m., Instead of trying to galvanize motivation to eat well and exercise, I find that I actually experience a craving. I also have a greater impulse toward daily integrity, to own my feelings, to align my words with my actions, to be honest and open. I'm filled with new ideas and energy for how to be myself in the world. End quote. Well, Aaron and I have had very rich conversations about what it means to engage this powerful medicine as a spirit teacher, and then what it means to feel called to hold that space for others. And now you get to listen to what this beautiful man has to share. So welcome, Aaron. Mm. Thank you so much, Shauna. It's so good to be with you. And, you know, I was wanting to say, just even from the conversation that we had before you started to record, I don't mean this to be a pun, but I've always felt truly at home with you. Um, 
many, many years ago when I would, when I first encountered your work. And now that we've stayed in touch and continue to explore things together, there is just a sense of really being welcomed. Um, and uh, I feel I feel very much at home. So thank you for having me. Oh, you are so welcome, Aaron. I Let's get kind of the business end over with in the beginning. And by that, I mean, we can talk about this because you live in Portland, Oregon, and psychedelics are legal there. So what does that mean exactly? Because I, I sometimes what they mean is it's just at the bottom of the barrel, so they're not going to really... Mm, yeah. or is it totally legal you you tell me and then how does that work as a practitioner yeah good question yeah oregon's um legalization of it is really unique um and so the the state of oregon has essentially created um a legal framework to allow for the industry um to, to flourish you know and flourish uh sort of above ground so to speak um certainly the uh, below ground is very is really alive and well I think there's also like a decriminalization of the substance, you know, yeah. and it's like very low priority for police right. enforcement thing. But yeah, but what Oregon has done to create this framework is I think, you know, it's controversial, sure. Um, but I think it's been a really big step forward in that it, um, you know, creates paths uh, for facilities to get licensed for the experiences to happen there. And for facilitators like myself to, to get a license and um, for growers to get licensed. And, you know, there are so many people in the world who would love to have this experience based upon what they hear from others. And for them, I think the first step has to be above ground. They just feel a much deeper sense of safety and what they're about to, to do. And so, um, yeah, so that's how it's happening in Oregon. Every place kind of has to get licensed. And um, and as a facilitator, yeah, I went through a six-month training program, um, which, you know, there's a lot of curriculum that you go through. Um, it's community-based. And then there's a practicum. And for that practicum, I went to Mexico um, for one week with a group of 14. And we worked with some, some very experienced um, facilitators that work with different medicines down there. So... Yeah, so here I am. I, I grew up in Oregon. <laughs> I'm back home in Oregon after a long life here, and it's just an amazing place to be alive given what's happened in my life. So I'm really grateful for the legalization. Yeah, all that. So you started in the Air Force, and I would just love to have you talk about that because, as I mentioned earlier, I have a soft spot in my heart for vets. Mm -hmm. and and just that whole framework, right? It's so different. And not only that, what we have in terms of military today is very different, I think, from mm. the warriorship of old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's yeah. Everything's so commercialized. But anyway, you were immersed in that framework, and then you moved into these extraordinary mushroom experiences. So can you talk about that? I'd love to hear your story. Yeah. Uh, well, when I was, when I was really young, I, I just knew that I wanted to fly. And so that's really the impulse that drew me into the military. I wouldn't consider any other branch than the Air Force. And I was a kid who just loved adventure, you know, and I think as I reflect back a little bit on and see now the kind of marketing of the Air Force or their military and adjoining, it is kind of really tapping into that kid who wants adventure and a free education and 
maybe a little bit different than it was thousands of years ago. And there's a more like, there's a kind of almost like an entertainment component of like, this is going to be fun. Like come fly jets. There's literally commercials, you know, that show kids skateboarding and then it's like they become a fighter pilot or something. <laughs> so anyways, all that to say, when I was young though, it wasn't that marketing. I had this really deep longing to fly. And um, I would sneak up onto the, like the roof of uh, our childhood home when nobody was looking and it was a vaulted spine, you know, like, so it was pretty high up. And I would, um, I have this one memory of going to the very edge of it and leaning over the edge with this really clear thought that I could fly, but that what was holding me, my what was holding me back was my fear that I couldn't fly. And it was like this paradox that was just so clear in my mind that what I hoped for was already a capability within me, but I couldn't tap into it because of the fear. And so I, you know, gave up on that sort of flight and I started to design jetpacks. You know, my dad would come by, I was like maybe 10 years old, designing jetpacks. I could run my back and he said, hey, you know, there's a school you can go to to learn how to do that and to fly. It's called the Air Force Academy. And so I opened up the encyclopedia and I just read it and basically memorized everything about it. And from that age, I just, that's all I wanted to do was to go to that school. And, um, and I, and I still love flight. I always have my whole life. So, so it really wasn't for me so much about the military. It was like, I wanted to go fly jets. I wanted to parachute. I did love the idea of a challenge and a really good education. Um, and so a lot of my childhood was, you know, it was a really loving, very supportive home. Um, the family was evangelical Christian and many generations of, of Christianity. Um, and uh, they just really supported me in my desire to go do that. And eventually, yeah, in high school, I received my acceptance and, a week after I graduated high school, I went to boot camp in Colorado um, to start that journey. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You talked in your article uh, about, uh, what you call it, hazing, was something you did. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I'm at the Air Force Academy, yeah, and I – that was such a wonderful chapter. I, I did join their parachute team and I, I got to parachute every day for like three and a half years. It was so wonderful. And um, anyways, I, yeah, you know, <clears throat> Christianity is such an interesting thread for me because it really is alive and well in the military. There's just so much Christianity in the military, so many different groups and Bible studies. And I was a part of that. Um, and then when you're a senior at the Academy, one of your, jobs is really to make life really difficult for the freshmen. Um, the whole freshman year there is kind of like a big hazing. It's a hard, hard year. And the very end of it is like a hell week. And so when you're a senior, you, you, for this hell week, you're allowed to transform your room into whatever sort of challenge you want it to be. You could design it in any way. And usually they're physical challenges to really like bring you to your knees physically but they can be mental challenges or whatever. And so my roommate and I, who, such a wonderful guy, Bryant Bevan, um, 
we were always just so creative, I don't know, and different things. And so we're like, you know, we're going to turn our room into a civilian coffee shop. It's going to be a really liberal one. And we're going to invite the freshmen into our room in groups of two. And we're going to, you know, serve them espresso, <laughs> truly. And we had like this fake fire in a rug and artwork. And we're going to ask them how their day was and what do you do for a living? And, and then we're going to kind of all of a sudden become like really antagonistic towards them and make them defend why they're in the military to test how thoughtful they are about that commitment. And so to help me, and so I was going to be, my, my roommate was going to pull the espresso and I would be the main antagonist. And so to help me with this, I emailed a professor at Colorado College. Um, I, one of my best childhood friends, Andrew, he, he was going to Colorado College, which is about, I don't know, five miles away from the Air Force Academy, but couldn't be more different of a school, a small liberal arts college. And so I knew there was a very outspoken anti-war professor there, and I emailed him to send me. I said, hey, this is what we're doing. Would you send me all of the different perspectives that you know of that are against war? And he was like, sure. <laughs> and and so one of those perspectives was that, that of a, in the imagery he created in my mind, of like a Catholic woman who said, you know, based upon my understanding of what Jesus said and what Jesus invites us into, um, I can't kill my enemy. Um, and, and this idea that, that Christians can, when they apply their theology, they can draw these lines around their life to create a safe zone for themselves and to say all of this talk about giving to the, you know, needy or forgiving others, like, that it's so it's good, but not when it threatens my safety and my security. And so this, this idea of, of really not having that sort of boundary. Um, and so I embodied that, that night in that hazing event with the freshmen, that perspective. And it, what I would say now is it kind of planted a seed within me. It felt too easy. Wow. And so, um, so after that night, I started to just get really curious and I read a lot of Martin Luther King Jr. for many years. Um, and, and his, you know, his work later in his life when he was speaking out against the Vietnam War and started to read a lot of like people within the Christian tradition that are pacifists and, you know, um, speak of nonviolence that it's rooted in a Christian theology. And it just really started to open me up. And I, so I graduated from the academy, and then I had my pilot slot, and I learned to fly. I went to Mississippi to fly jets. And um, and I and I went on the fighter-bomber track, so I was flying a T-38, which is the, it's a small fighter jet that the Air Force has used for decades to train fighter pilots and bomber pilots. But And so meanwhile, while I'm kind of on this really – you know, this, this, this trajectory, this path that had a lot of momentum to it underneath it all. I was like realizing that I was really not in alignment with it. And, um, and then a few, uh, maybe I'll mention just two moments that happened while I was in the air force that feel to me, they're kind of like pivotal moments that helped me realize that that wasn't my path. And the first is 
around the time when I was graduating from the academy, um, the parachute team that I was on was just a really tight bond of, of, of brothers and sisters, very tight bond. And we were out one night drinking at a pub and this captain was with us. He was maybe 10 years older than us, also had graduated from the academy. He went to pilot training and went on to fly A-10 jets, which is an air-to-ground attack plane, which has this just massive machine gun strapped to its nose. So it flies really low to the ground and, um, and, and, and the pilot shoots people. And, um, he had returned to the academy to be an instructor at the school and was also a parachute instructor and pilot for the jump planes that we jump out of. <clears throat> and we were with him at the pub and I just remember it being very dark and we were all around a table, I think drinking something like Guinness and he was telling us the stories like, yeah, when it was, when I was in Iraq, my commanding officer would always be telling us, you know, that we're, we're here to do the Lord's work. And then he was, then he said, but you know, when I, when I flew that plane on the missions, when I would, when I would be at that moment where I would kind of roll the jet in and nose to the ground and look at my target and have my finger on the trigger, the, the only thing that I thought was, this isn't the Lord's work. And that's all, that's what he said. I just remember it was kind of like a period at the end of that sentence. <laughs> and, I don't know what we all did from there, but it just really stuck with me. Um, and then I went to pilot training. And then when I was in pilot training, which I just loved, I just loved the flying and the people, and there's so much about it that I miss. Um, but uh, there's one day at the end of pilot training when we were in an auditorium, uh, and there was maybe 200 or so student pilots, and we were waiting for these experienced pilots to come onto the stage and while we were waiting they were playing video footage with rock music in the background and it was just kind of people were listening and talking and waiting and this footage was um video from an a10 thunderbolt that was diving down and shooting people and um and the people were dying and some people you know would get shot maybe in half and then try to crawl away and the the energy in the room was one of cheer and laughter and my hands I remember them sweating because I was about to go on the stage and just be like what are we doing but I didn't I walked out of that auditorium and that was the moment when I knew that I didn't want to participate anymore and what and in the whole complex the whole military complex um and so I went home and I told my family. They let me go home for two or three weeks and, and talk, tell my family and process it before I made my decision. I know I've said a lot there, so maybe I'll, I'll pause to see if you have anything. You, you had me riveted. Mm. That's just so powerful. It's really moving to hear that, Aaron. Yeah. Well, should I maybe finish that story a little bit? Yeah, I'd, I'd like you to. Okay. Um, so, so when I was home, my family just thought I was nuts, didn't understand it. And did, you know, as I, as I, as I would expect them to, they did everything they could to really try to dissuade me from, um, from leaving. 
but there there were two people in my life, two childhood friends, Andrew and Joe. Um, Andrew was at Colorado College, and he was studying philosophy. He graduated with a degree in philosophy, and Joe, I think he also did philosophy in undergrad. And at the time, Andrew and Joe were in New York City pursuing PhDs in philosophy and theology at Fordham. And so I was, I was, at, I was back home with my family, telling them I was going to leave, and I just knew I was going to leave. It was more than it, it wasn't like you know, what do you think? It was more like I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, and I think the emotion that comes up for me right now is because <laughs> they're so loving, and they had been so supportive. And I think it was probably really hard for them, maybe confusing for them to see me make this decision that they couldn't understand at all. Um, Because for them, it was their faith, you know, kind of like the George Bush sort of faith. It was their faith, this conflation of faith and patriotism, you know, that that led them to the military. And my family had people in the military for at least the past three or four generations. So um, anyways, so I told that military that I would leave, and they said, I I originally tried to pursue it through conscientious objection, but they said we have too many pilots so you can go. You you just have to pay back your education. And I said, that's fine. So then, um, yeah, I left the military in April of 2006. And um, when I was in my car, well, I decided to drive to New York City to go see Andrew and Joe. They were living in the East Village, and they had a futon waiting for me. And so I get in my car, and I start to drive from Mississippi to New York, and I just started to cry. Um, Like, uncontrollably. And I look back on it now, and I do think of it as my first psychedelic experience. Um. Because it felt so potent and clear that words won't ever touch. Um, (laughs) But I was crying because I felt so overwhelmed by love and this idea, this realization of this feeling that there is nothing that anybody could ever do that would not allow me to act from a place of love. Like, even the most cruel person or the most harshest condition still does not rob me from the freedom to act out of love. And so, so, yeah, I drove to New York City and lived with Andrew and Joe for three years. And it was, they were people who could really help me ask really big questions about life, (laughs) have a lot of fun with, you know, and they exposed me to just tremendous thinkers and books, ways of thinking about the world. And they just understood me from when I was a little kid. So it was a really great time. Wow. Wow. And then when did you... Gosh, it seems like such a perfect progression, especially, you know, opening your mind with these different writers and thinkers and 
philosophers, I'm sure. And then when did you find your way to your first mushroom experience? Um, well, I'll make that a somewhat of a short story so we can talk more, more about the, the work that I'm doing with, with mushrooms now. But, um, but Joe, Joe had read a poem one night over dinner, just the three of us, me, Andrew, and Joe, on a winter night. It was very dark, I remember. And nobody remembers what the poem was, which is probably a really fun and great thing. But nobody remembers. But this image in my mind really pierced me. And it was, and I don't even remember the words behind it, but I can just tell you the image that stuck with me. And it was the image of a man in winter working his ass off to create shelter for himself and warmth. But he didn't know that spring was coming. And I thought to myself, this I think this is a really incredible thought experiment for us all to do, is what would it be like to live in the season of fall and winter not knowing that spring is coming? And if you really sit with that, you realize that that's what our modern world is doing. It's trying to re, to, trying to go backwards. It feels like it's sort of, there's a fall, there's some sort of fall. Things aren't quite right. Things aren't as good as they used to be. There's something I'm really longing for. It's like a deep existential angst. And we try through the strength of our morals and through the strength of our ingenuity to climb our way backwards up to summer to kind of recreate a summer for ourselves that we never can. The horizon's always sort of receding on that. And um, so anyways, this image of the poem was just like, wow, it's, you know, it's, it's this idea. And this is what the wisdom carriers and different, you know, different lineages, different religions, people not with any religion have said is like, no, there's a spring. You just have to go through the winter solstice to get there. And so I say that because that, that night and that idea of just this like, really fundamental narrative of flourishing that things die and that in that death, you know, comes rebirth. And that's a good process. It's hard, but it's good. And I, I just became so curious about that. And as I read authors and books, I found my way to Arrowwood, Arrowwood, this website, you know, people haven't discovered it. should check it out. E-R-O-W-I-D, Arrowwood.org maybe. And I just started reading for many years, hundreds and hundreds of different people write about their experiences with psychedelics. And it made me realize that I thought I knew what they were from my upbringing, but I really didn't. And these were beautiful stories of people um, sharing, you know, these processes of moving through kind of different, like a death and a rebirth. And, and so then I texted a good friend of mine from childhood who lived in Utah at the time. And, and, and by now I'm, I'm fast forwarding many years here. I'm f- so I'll just maybe back up a second and say, you know, I lived in New York for three years and then I got married while I was there. And then my wife and I, whose name is also Aaron, we moved to Seattle and, and um, we lived there for six years, had kids. And then now I'm in Portland, I'm in Oregon with the family. And, and so there was probably from 2006 to, I don't know when, maybe 10 years of me doing a lot of this sort of inner work and reading um, and thinking about wanting to have an experience with psilocybin. And then when I was ready, I texted a good friend who was in Utah at the time. 
And I just said, would you come out here and do this with me? And I didn't know where I'd get the mushrooms. I didn't know if he would, I haven't talked, I hadn't talked to him in like a year. And he replied back instantly. He said, yes. And then I talked on the phone with him later that day. And he told me that he and his girlfriend had just started to grow mushrooms. And um, the day that I texted him was the day that they first fruited. And so <laughs> that's my friend Garrett. <laughs> Love you, Garrett. And yeah, so Garrett um, flew out and we went camping on Mount Hood, this beautiful mountain next to Portland. We went camping uh, next to a river and an old growth forest. And um, I had my first experience with mushrooms then. And, you know, I, I had started to have a career in business, mostly in technology. I worked for Microsoft for many years and did consulting work. And it, I never liked it, never wanted to be doing it, but just had to have a job, you know. And so I had some anxiety in my life around that and some melancholy. And I think just being a dad of young kids, it's, you know, and marriage, it's all just, it's just hard work sometimes. It really is. And so I brought to that mushroom experience just that. And and it was so profound. It really was. It it It, it really just reminded me. It. It was a perspective. It gave me perspective. It reminded me of what I am grateful for in this life and how it's just right in front of me. And it put sort of my anxieties in context. And the whole experience was so profound. But the thing that I really took from it was this comic absurdity that what I had just experienced was illegal. I just couldn't, couldn't get past that. And I knew that I wanted to play some part in destigmatizing what this is about and potentially maybe create safe spaces for others. But I certainly didn't think about facilitating at that point. At that point, it was really just me wanting to develop a relationship with the mushroom, um, which is what I did after that for many years, a very private but intentional practice. Yeah. Yeah which I think is so, I think that's so important. And I think that is almost a given that you have a relationship. Because, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. of course, it's in the news a lot and it has great efficacy for, of course, assisting people therapeutically. But there is a spiritual mm. to this, a very mm-hmm. deep and profound yeah spiritual side and Mm. you know i just i just feel if you're going to be facilitating think it just goes without saying that you should have a relationship with Mm. what you are yeah i I appreciate you saying that i absolutely agree and i and i think also that when i work with people you know they come to it maybe wanting to have one experience because i've heard it's helpful but i really work with them to understand this as a a relationship that they can form that they should form you know we have we it's we form relationships with all sorts of plants and fungi and animals in our world and these relationships are symbiotic and and um we're all in this together you know it's a collaboration it's a participation it's beautiful we have so much to learn from each other and so i really 
I really love this idea of a relationship as sort of just the most fundamental way that we even think about these substances, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Would you feel comfortable just sharing a bit about what is your relationship with the mushroom? Yeah. Um, by the way, a fan just turned on. Can you still hear me okay? Is the audio? Okay, beautiful. Um, my relationship with the mushroom. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, I just feel in deep allyship to it. Um, I think that uh, I I feel... Okay, so in one of my earlier journeys, when I was just by myself, it was a higher dose experience. I was in the forest. And I remember really not being so sure, like, is this sort of thing going to take me sideways in life? Am I going to be in a cardboard box thinking that I just know the truth and just screaming at people or something? Or or is it going to lead me to, like, you know, really um, leading a good life? And I, I, I asked the mushroom in that experience, I said, what is your agenda? And before I could even, you know, finish that word, it just responded instantly with one word that was just full of meaning and that word was life you know so i think that what mushrooms do in our physical world is no different than what it does in the world of our psyche or our soul um you know they're they're agents of unlearning and relearning of of really cycling of helping the cycle of life happen and so yeah my relationship with the mushroom feels really deep and symbiotic and i would even say in a later experience you know i I, I, I felt this real longing to connect with nature. Um, and then, um, and then there's this really clear message. You know, I know kind of nature's not an other, we are it, you know, but I was kind of relating to it in that, in that way. And it related back to me. It said, well, you know, we really want to have a relationship with you too. Like, it's it's not just one-sided. Like, so many humans are like, you know, like, we need to respect and love nature and enjoy it, you know. But then nature is just like, like, oh, my God, you're a fucking human. Like, we really want you and we want all of you. We just don't want, we don't want the serene you or, like, the, you know, whatever you. We want all of you, all of your grief and anxiety and whatever. And so, anyways, I could speak maybe more at length about my relationship with the mushroom, but it just feels like, like something that really has invited me into the fullness of life and what it can be, how beautiful it can be and how hard it can be and all of it. I mean, it's also wild that we're here living this life, but the mushroom just feels like it's just like a partner in that. I think. Yes, yeah. very much so. Very, very much so. I like your word you used in your bio, ally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. You know, and I'll say too, Shona, like I, I'm, we oftentimes like in midlife, like when you come into a relationship with a mushroom, you're bringing decades of patterns and pattern, you know, and, and just life. Yeah. Just decades of patterns. And it can take decades for those things to, to, to be reshaped, you know? And so I give myself and everybody else a whole lot of patience in this work as you get to know the mushroom, there are different layers, you know, of, of, of work to be done. And it just feels like an ally that can, meet people where they're at, meet us where we're at and really kind of grow with us and teach us, you know, things. And, um, 
And I, I guess just what I wanted to say, too, is that even the concept of allyship, I don't think our Western world really understands that at all. We're just so used to using things, to using tools. In fact, I privately just can't stand it when we refer to the mushroom as a tool. Like, what sort of tool do you ever have a relationship with? I don't know. You use a tool. Like, it kind of puts humans too much in the center of things to call it a tool. Like, I wield it with my, I don't know, like I'm much, my relationship with the mushroom is more like, let's learn together. Or I have a lot to learn from you. Um, but then I realize it just opens me up to myself more. Um, and so I'm, it's not like I'm always learning from the mushroom per se, but I think it just helps create a space within myself um, to really learn from nature. Um, yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, all right. So you have these years of engagement, apprenticeship to this great teacher. When did you start facilitating and how did that come about? Yeah. Um, after like, I don't know, five or six years of having my own experiences with the mushroom and sort of developing this relationship, there's just a clear moment within a journey where, um, at the very end of it, actually, not even during the real trip part of it. Um, it's almost like the mushroom in, like embodied a grandfather of some sort and and said, you know, I'd like to invite you to to share this with other people and and extended its hand and I shook that hand and it just felt a sort of like a really private but sacred agreement and um and it felt really natural to me too because it had been so helpful for me in in my life and i just you know when when something feels really helpful and good to you it's like you naturally do want to share it with others so that was maybe um three or four years ago from now and so i started to facilitate experiences for people mostly friends and then it became friends of friends you know, and um, and then it got legalized in Oregon during this time. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, I'm living in Oregon right now, and it just got legalized? Like, so I immediately, you know, signed up and took a that training course to get licensed. And so I've been able to stop um, doing the previous work that I had been doing for many years in business. And now I just do this work full time, facilitating for people and also leading group um, retreats. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about the group retreats. Because I, I, I work the 101 and, at one-on-one. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that you do one-on-one. -on -one. I think that's so important. And mm -hmm. I've heard from different clients over the years, not great stories about working in groups. And I know you do it yeah. in a very, a very good way. So I'd love to hear uh, what that is. Yeah. Great question. Yeah, well, I'll say that, yeah, um, you know, I think that this is, one-on-one -on -one experiences are great and wonderful. I don't mean to discount those in any way and anything that I'll say from here, but I really do see this as a community medicine. And when you look at, you know, so many of the different plant medicine traditions, um, it, it, it's it's done in group. And, um, and uh, one of the phrases that I've come to love in this work is that the medicine is half the medicine. Or, or the medicine is just part of the medicine. 
And so the presence that we each bring to this work in group and, and just the vulnerability and trust that we form of sharing our full selves and seeing other people in their full selves and that sort of witness of the fullness of humanity with other people. I mean, that is medicine in and of itself, you know. Um, and so group work, I just think, has to be done in a really strong container. You know, the person that is really holding that, people have to be able to hold that space and do it from a place of really high integrity and from love and safety. And so I can imagine that people have some group experiences maybe that weren't curated well or held well. Yeah, that can happen for sure. Um, but in the work that I do, you know, I feel like I just have this really wonderful community of other facilitators that I really see as brothers and sisters, truly. And um, the spaces that I think we can create for people are, um, you know, really safe. And, and And fundamentally, I feel like that's this sort of, again, just half of the medicine is to be able to go on a retreat and feel safer than you've even felt alone with yourself. Like some, we, we build up these, you know, protectors inside of ourselves, um, which, which we need to function in life. But to be with other people where you have such a deep level of trust and safety that you can allow all those guards to come down and to work with a powerful um, thing like, you know, the psilocybin mushroom, um, the group work, it's just absolutely profound. And it, it it also just builds community. And so you don't feel so alone. I think that's one of the hardest things with facilitating for people one-on-one is they go back to their lives and just feel like so alone. And they can't. Sh- it's hard to share with other people. So that's, that's one. And, and, and I'll just say one other thing too here is that, you know, the more that I do this work and facilitate for people and see people and groups having just really, really awe, like, uh, really helpful experiences. Of, of sure, they're hard, and we can talk more about what what it's like. But but people go back to their everyday lives, and I feel like if you're going to be doing this work, then and I'll speak for myself. I feel an obligation to try to meet people in their everyday lives to create spaces for integration, you know, for rest, for connection, for community, because our what our modern world accepts as normal in terms of just an everyday way of living your life is um, is not in service of our well-being. And so um, much of my work is not just in the facilitation, but really thinking about how to just support people in the, in the everyday. Beautiful, beautiful. How would you say that your practice with this very old tradition of massage the whisking mm. because that what yeah. i so appreciate about that is mm. it's all about the body and my late teacher dr brew joy used to talk about this and he was very cerebral but he was also deeply honoring of the body and he would say the sacred is in the body mm-hmm. and yeah. you know and you're touching another and you're right you know just you're tuned into the rhythms and and the blockages and Anyway, I'd love to hear it from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just say briefly, you know, I grew up around forests in Oregon and particularly oak trees. Where I grew up before white people came, it was an oak savanna that the indigenous people would tend to. And, um, you know, they would do their own, you know, um, wildfires as a way of supporting the earth and its flourishing. 
and I love to climb oak trees. And when I lived in New York City, I lived in the East Village with Andrew and Joe. Um, and we happened to live across the street from a Russian and Turkish bathhouse that had been there since the late 1800s. And when I went to that bathhouse and experienced, you know, the banya and different sauna rooms and the cold plunge, I realized that I thought I knew what sauna was, but I really didn't. There was just a whole new understanding of what it means to be in a, you know, in a hot room. And I, and I intentionally don't want to call it something because when you, there's so many different names for it, right? Across all these different parts of our earth, all the, the different, um, com, you know, um, communities of people that have lived here for thousands of years, this idea of getting into a really hot room with other people and sweating and then going jumping into cold water, such a, a primal ancient practice. So I fell in love with that in New York as a way to help with my mental health and just have fun. And I, 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 I could bring in there all of my anxieties or whatever, and I would leave feeling light as a feather and like a million bucks. And I watched there people do this whisking work. It's, it's very traditional in Russia. Um, and in fact, you know, Scandinavia and the Baltic countries, for thousands of years, people would always bring plants into the sauna. You know, the sauna is like an everyday thing, and it's a way that they bathe, and they bring in all sorts of species of plants. I mean, you look at, like, Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia in particular, um, you know, I don't know. There's, I was going to say a number, like over 50 different species, but no, there's no number. They just bring in, you know, all of the different plants have these properties, and they bring them into the sauna and soak them in water. And, and use them in different ways on the body for aromatherapy, you know, and also just for application on the body. And so I witnessed this, a bit of this happening in New York. And I've always loved receiving massage and giving massage. And so one day I bought whisks from like a Russian, you know, little mart um, when I was living out in Oregon now in Portland. And with a few of my friends who loved to sauna regularly, and one of them had a backyard banya that he built. And I said, hey, can I bring these and just give it a go? And 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 something, Shona, with that was unlike anything else that I've ever experienced. When I held those whisks in my hand of oak um, and did this for the first time, it felt like I knew what I was doing. And um, it was really just intuitive. And uh, they told me, you know, you should think about maybe just going to some of the public um, bathhouses in Portland and just offering this. And so I, that's what I've been doing now for, um, you know, maybe four years. Um, and it's very part-time, like once a month I'll do this. And and so basically somebody lays on the top bench of the sauna and these whisks of oak and birch and other species have been soaking in warm water, so they're very supple. The leaves are really fragrant. And um, as the person lays down under their head is a pillow of different species. Um, and, and there's like herbal whisks of like 13 different herbs. And um, eucalyptus is one that I always love to put under people's head. And so then they lay on that bench for 15 minutes. And, you know, with the whisks, I bring heat down to the body. 
And it's a very gentle process at first of really warming up the body. And then I compress each of the joints with the whisks from head to toe and the feet in particular, you know, to help with blood circulation and warmth. And, and then I start to slowly, like, I exfoliate the whole body with these and then start to rhythmically tap. And then the middle of the experience gets more intense. And it's like, you know, you're, you're basically, um, you know, beating them with these whisks. But there's the language, none of it works. Like, it's, it's not felt as a difficult thing. It's like, um, it's more of a nurturing thing. But when you look at it from the outside, it looks like somebody's beating somebody with these whisks. So um, anyways, yeah, that's the work. And I truly do feel so called to it. And I love it because energetically, I feel like it's um, we just all need tended to in a really tender way. Our bodies do. And we need to rediscover bathing. This modern notion of taking a quick shower, you know, you can learn a lot from a society by looking at how it bathes or learn a lot from somebody maybe from how they bathe do you give yourself time for it and so this this experience is one where people really surrender their body and let go and just relax and it's a pretty blissful and sometimes people will say like a very psychedelic sort of experience um it's like some people say it's like an energetic car wash or maybe like a forest bath in the truest sense and so, um, yeah, it's another part of my work that I just, I absolutely love doing it. So how do you bring that philosophy into a yeah. psilocybin retreat? Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for that question. I mean, you look at, again, these, so many traditions of plant medicine work and you see the you see them bringing together the plant medicine work with the sweat lodge or the temezcal, right? And and so there is a beautiful and very natural synergy of these two things. And um, and you know I I'm from my lineage goes back into Western Europe and and you, and and there are these um, ruins of old saunas in Ireland and Scotland and and so I I'm very interested about exploring that, but. Uh, basically like the way i under the way i feel like the synergy is if, if i were to kind of put words to it is that the sauna really strips us down to our elements you know if you think about it fire and earth water and air and our naked bodies you know it it's really just strips it way down and so much of our anxieties of our life comes from these layers that we build up of like, I am, you know, this worker or I make this much money. I mean, all that stuff, it's just all, we know it's all bullshit stuff that just becomes a part of our identity. And so the sauna really is this invitation to come into a space where you can let all that melt away and just be with other people. And I, and I, I really do appreciate the nudity. It's really helped me differentiate, you know, um, like sexuality from nudity and just under the beauty of our bodies and really being fully seen. I mean, it's just such a helpful thing. And, and so, you know, the psychedelic work is so similar, right? It's like a need to really show up and surrender and just bring your whole self to the experience and trust that you're working with something that has your best interest in mind and, and so, you know, doing a sauna before a psychedelic trip is a really great way of people just 
allowing their nervous systems to deeply relax into that place. And then also after a psychedelic journey to be able to go to a sauna um, as a place to just get out of your head a little bit and more into your body and process and be with other people. And so I really see the sauna as a truly as a way of life. And one of my visions and hopes in my life is to um, create a place where people can do this sort of psilocybin, you know, journey work and also for there to be a bathhouse that is affordable for people to come to every day. You know, what a wonderful replacement maybe of like going to the bar or watching too many shows. Like um, it really is such a beautiful thing to bring into your life, but it's so expensive, you know, for so many people and the, and the current options. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful that I can help bring into being something that feels like it is more possible for the everyday. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And I was thinking how a mushroom journey can be <laughs> like being stripped naked mentally, emotionally. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you... that's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just that surrender over to the, the <laughs> elements, if you will. And, uh, and the cleansing, because a journey can be very cleansing. And how interesting also that it is moisture that brings forth those mushrooms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, I, it's, I never put this together, but like, you know, working with mushrooms and also with the sauna, like I come to really look forward to the fall and winter. Mm-hmm. Very much so, which is like in Oregon in the Northwest where it's so overcast, that can be the hardest season, you know, for people. And I've had some journeys with the mushroom in the fall out in the forest when it's pouring rain. And and we just did a retreat a few weekends ago out in the forest in a cabin where it was pouring rain. And the it just really can help you fundamentally shift the way you relate to cold, to rain, to fall and winter. And so I think there are just like, you know, an, an infinite number of ways that you can kind of position or frame or work with this mushroom. But one of them that I am curious about being in Oregon is like for people that suffer from seasonal effectiveness order, like let's go out into the forest where it's raining and maybe soak in a hot tub and journey with this medicine. And it's, or not go out into the rain and get cold, but come back into a sauna, like just kind of getting out into the elements, I think can just be such a powerful reset for how we relate to climate and the seasons. Absolutely. And I, having lived in the Seattle area for 18 years, which I cannot believe, but yeah. I, that time of the year never bothered me. And I actually mm-hmm. found the fall winter time when it was overcast and moist as being very womb like. Yeah. Yeah. And- Forest is very womb-like, and I, I had an amazing mushroom mm. journey where I was up in the Quinault Rainforest with a, a dear friend of mine, and we ate some uh, wild mushroom. Oh, my goodness. Is it that azurescence? Azure- yeah, that, that grows, yeah, on the you know, coast range, yeah. Right. Yes, yes. But on the coast, yeah. And, I mean, it was wet and rainy, and we actually had waders on. And we just went out into the forest, and it, it was an 
absolutely exquisite mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel, and also, of course, mm-hmm. my first half dozen mushroom journeys all those years ago took place in that mossy yeah forest at night, you know? So <laughs> I just, something opened in me, I tell you. And, and I remember on that mm-hmm. one particular journey on the Azarescence, I felt all of these, I had a sense behind me of the presence of many, many ladies in white. And then I turned and looked over my shoulder and it was all these thin birch trees. No, oh, wow, beautiful. And yeah. I realized like the the I I the spirit of those trees opened too mm-hmm. many. It was all these ladies in white. Anyway, my goodness, like I, I love your idea. I love that idea, Aaron, to bring these people into yeah. mossy, moist, mm-hmm. just earthy forest at that time of the year, put a little mushroom in them and just watch what happens. Yeah. I think that might be even be something that is far older than we even know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when you were saying, oh, white people cut down the oak trees and, uh, I would say white people of a certain mindset, right? Because our folk, <laughs> the Celts, the Gales, the Scandinavians, yeah. the Germanic people, oh my God, you go back and you see how they treasured nature. Hey, yeah, thank you for invoking that. I, as a white person and a white male, I think it's just like a wild time to to be born, to be incarnated into this society. And like, I am so curious about my lineage and what it means, what it is meant for white people to be deeply connected to the earth as their mother. We, I mean, we always, we really truly always have been. Yeah. So as Irish, they were brought here as indentured. Right. Which is a nice way for, you know, nice term for slavery. Right. It was horrendous what was done. And so, yeah. anyway, there's just the, in old Europe, there is, mm. and not even so old, such a, an appreciation for the forest, for the trees. And Victor Schauberger, who was known as the water wizard, he was from Austria. And he was born in 1865, around, I believe. And he was born to a family of foresters there. And their family motto was, faithful to the silent forest. So, yeah, yeah. I I, I personally am not, I take a step back with all this sort of current Mm -hmm. narrative because to me it's very mean-spirited and it's very divisive. And I just love my brothers of all colors. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's so f- interesting. This is the d- divisiveness, you know, I've, I've really cut back on my consumption of, of, you know, of unnecessary news and media. And um, I, I feel like it's just, I, I realize now like how much of that divisiveness, I think is, is just sort of like spun up and isn't totally real. <laughs> you know, when you really get to know people underneath it, I think, yeah, the, the the role that media plays in our culture is like really quite dangerous. Yeah. Yes, yes, and whoever is spinning what the media then vomits out, yeah, that, you know, poisons people's minds, and you have divisiveness, and there is that old saying, "A nation divided falls." Mm-hmm. 
divided we fall. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, but, but anyway, and, and, and yeah, and then our people have, boy, a lot of medicine, uh, mushrooms grow all over. Yeah. This is, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. They grow all over and like, yeah, I think there's something I, I've spoken to some other people who facilitate and, and uh, you know, like ayahuasca or, you know, peyote and come from those lineages. And I spoke to a woman recently who has a lot of experience and connection you know, into the world of ayahuasca. And she, she mentioned to me that in a mushroom experience, she was told like, this is different. And you really have to like, let yourself unlearn a lot of things. And I think mushrooms for me feel like very, like in terms of how we use them, or how if there's something really intuitive, I think that can happen versus like, a lineage that kind of gives us some guardrails. And, you know, of course, there's sort of danger and maybe not having some set guardrails. I mean, there's some precedent in, in, you know, with Maria Sabina, but we really don't have too much. They grow all over the world. And so I think there is this sort of deep allyship that humanity has had with psilocybin. Um, but it might be up for us in this moment right now, for those of us who have that relationship to really go into it and explore like, how do we, how does it make sense to do this in group? Um, yeah, I think we're all in just the, this deep phase of learning, you know? Yes. I love that. You're, you're carving a path. You mm. among others are carving a path for how can this look? Yeah. This look when held with yeah. great reverence and respect. Right. There's many ways. Yeah. Anyways, that's the thing that I just keep on getting my mind blown with in this work is that there are so many different ways that this can help us be human, to to be loving, to create flourishing communities. But I think the thing that I keep on coming back to in it is that, you know, it's um, and I'll I'll say it this way, um, in, in the middle of a journey that I had and actually in Mexico during my practicum experience for training. (laughs) <laughs> the mushroom said to me very clearly, it said, you know, don't forget that you're not a student of psychedelics. You're a student of love and of living. Mm-hmm. And so I think as we work with this medicine, it is very important to remember that it's just, it's not just about the psilocybin, you know? Right. Oh, you're just reminding me. That's why I called my book. I wrote love and spirit medicine because midway through that year of the monthly journeys I did, I said, this is, this is love and spirit medicine. Right. I tried yeah. my book that because that's what it yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And I love that too. Cause like, yeah. I mean, if, if it, for me, it's gosh, maybe it was a Ram Dass who said something like, if you're going to put your ear to the lips of God, you should have your two feet in the mud. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I love just this idea of like, let's go have some really wild, like mystical experiences where we explore consciousness and ourselves. And, but let's also have our feet in the mud together and live our everyday lives together. And if, and if um, all of our sort of psychedelic exploration um, doesn't bear the fruit, you know, of good living, then maybe we need to take a step back. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Aaron. Well, listen, let's finish here for the first hour. This was wonderful. I could listen to you for hours. So 
In the second hour, I'm going to get deeper into what those retreats look like, what you, what your principles are with all of that, and more. So I will invite listeners to join us at themushroomsapprentice.com and subscribe, and we will get back into it. 